Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the gathering of the people together, your people, the family of God. We call this a sanctuary or a church. It's simply an auditorium where the church gathers. We are your church. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture, the people of your hand. We thank you for being such a great shepherd to us, taking care of us, all of our needs. Besides that, even blessing us above and beyond sometimes. Father, we're here to sing, we're here to praise, we're here to listen and apply and to commemorate that we have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We happen to be in the right place for our communion service tonight. As you're turning there, let me tell you a story of what happened to me several years ago. On my birthday, I got a card, a birthday card. And it's the kind that when you open up, it plays a song. It has a little speaker attached to it, a little computer gizmo. And it was a song that tweeted out, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. And I read it, and I listened to it, and it was sweet, but this isn't something you're going to save. I threw the card away eventually. But get this. When I threw that card away, I threw away more computer power than existed in the entire earth before the year 1950. Isn't that amazing to think about? See, that is the problem with technology. Technology is great, but it moves so quickly, there's never a finished model. You get the phone now, it's outdated in six months. Am I right? You get the computer now, there's going to be a new model or a new app or a new operating system. You are never quite there. It's the frustrating part of technology. If you look at the scriptures in the Old Testament, you have a system that is an incomplete system. It anticipates something greater that is coming. Yes, God could be accessed in the Old Testament. Through a series of animal sacrifices, the shedding of blood by which a person could approach God. But it was never quite enough. It never quite did it. It was like old spiritual technology. It was like approaching God 1.0. And yes, things were added to it. Prophets came, but it was never quite enough because you see, sin was only covered. It was never removed. Just covered over temporarily. So that is why the Old Testament anticipates, for the sake of analogy, better technology in the future. Jeremiah chapter 31, God says, The days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, a new covenant with my people, and I'll put my law in their mind, in their hearts. He anticipated that the old covenant would pass away and something new 
would come because it was needed. In chapter 26 of Matthew, we come to the apex of the book. We're entering into the moments, hours, days before the crucifixion of Christ. The Passover meal was about to be celebrated. Interesting, at every Passover meal, there's parts that different family members play. And the part that a child selected in the family is to play at every Passover is to ask a very key question. Sometime in the meal, the child selected will ask out loud, what makes this night different from all other nights? That's the setup question because the father, the host, will talk about the deliverance of the children of Israel out of bondage into freedom by God. They're taught to see this night as a special night. But indeed, above and beyond just the Passover celebration, with Jesus Christ bringing new meaning to the ancient Passover celebration, this night would be an incredibly special night. Because the Lamb that the Old Testament anticipated would be a Lamb that would once for all take away the sin of the world, and that would be Christ. That is why the great Bible teacher Graham Scroggie, he's a British guy who lived several years ago, wrote some great books on Scripture. He said, if you cut the Bible anywhere, it will bleed. It all speaks of this impending sacrifice. And said that same author, all pre-New Testament history looks forward to the cross, while all post-New Testament history looks backward to the cross. So in chapter 26, we read in verse 1, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he said to his disciples, Now all of this will lead up to the upper room and the meeting with the Passover meal. You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. There were three festivals that the Jews kept at Jerusalem every single year. Passover, we're dealing with that here. Fifty days later, Pentecost. And in the fall time of the year, the Feast of Tabernacles. By and far, the greatest of all of the three feasts was the Passover. The Pesach in Hebrew. It was so monumental that every adult male, and in Judaism that's like 12 years and above, who lived within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem, it was compulsory that they show up in Jerusalem during the Passover. And beyond that, it wasn't just that you have to go. Everyone who was Jewish and lived anywhere else in the land or in the world dreamed, dreamed that one day they would be able to go to Jerusalem and celebrate Passover. They would say, Lashana haba'a be'erushalayim. Next year in Jerusalem. 
That was their prayer. That was their cry. Oh, that we one day would be able to go to the holy city and celebrate the Passover next year in Jerusalem. And part of their prayer was this. May the Messiah speedily come in our day. That was the ritual that was being set up every single year. So you can see this Passover would be extra special because of what is about to take place. A little background. According to the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, on one Passover alone, around the time of Christ, not at the time, but around that time, the number of lambs that were sacrificed in the temple precincts was 256,000. Some of the ancient writers try to tie a 10-person minimum per lamb at the Passover meal to be eaten. So many scholars conservatively say that the population swelled in Jerusalem at the time of Christ to at least two and a half million people. It was just crammed full of people. Priests killed the lambs within a two-hour period, and they would kill, there were hundreds of priests, they would kill about two lambs per minute per priest. It would become this huge ritual of the slaughter of the lamb, the lamb given to the family, and it would be taken off to be eaten for the Passover. If you were to walk around Jerusalem 2,000 years ago at the Passover, you would notice things are very different during the festival. The streets were cleared up, cleaned up. All of the sepulchers, the tombs were newly painted white, so you'd never walk on one and defile yourself by touching the abode of a dead person. But if you were to go out on the streets, there would be discussions about the Passover. There would be songs being sung about the Passover. There would be children's games and riddles and word puzzles just to get everybody oriented toward this special time of the year. Now that is the Passover, and it happened on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. Nisan. Not the truck company or the car company. The Jewish month, Nisan. In the springtime of the year, March, April, our March, April. On the 14th day of Nisan, the lambs were slaughtered. On the 15th day, the very next day, began a whole other feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread from the 15th to the 21st day of Nisan. And so all of this festivity was taking place at the time. Verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany... At the house of Simon, the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil, and she poured it out on his head and sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? Now let's back up and understand the scene. In that house, on that night, And the other gospel writers speak about this. It was a meal. If you were to combine Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John, there was a meal going on in the house of Simon the leper. There were at least 17 people at that meal. Probably more, but at least 17. There was Jesus, his 12 disciples. There was Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead recently. His two sisters, Martha and Mary, And Simon, who's called Simon the leper. Now we have to just 
underscore the fact that he would be called Simon the leper, not because he had leprosy at the time. He was Simon the ex-leper. He had been healed by Jesus. And he was there at the meal. He was there in Bethany at the table celebrating Jesus, Lazarus, the guest of honor, and Simon the ex-leper. But he's still called Simon the leper probably because he was just known in the village as Simon the leper. He had it for years. I found a little bit of history. If you were to stand on the Mount of Olives, and some of you have, if you look directly west, you're looking down at the city of Jerusalem, the wall around it, the Temple Mount, Mount Zion behind it. If you were to look off to the west from the Mount of Olives, you look down toward Jericho and the Dead Sea. On the slope of the Mount of Olives, just over the other side was the town of Bethany. That's where Lazarus lived. That's where Martha and Mary, his two sisters, lived. That's where Jesus hung out a lot when he was in Jerusalem. But according to the Essenes, have you heard of the Essenes before? Have you ever heard of that name? It was a group of very severe living people down by the Dead Sea. According to the Essenes, Bethany was the place where sick houses were, where people were gathered together who had ailments and they were being nursed back to health. And there was a leper colony in the area. So it was not uncommon to see sick folks, and it would certainly be a place for Simon the leper to gather. Now, at this meal is Simon, is Lazarus, and according to the other texts of Scripture, Martha, his sister, is serving, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Mary is the one that has the expensive oil pouring it upon Jesus. All of that is this setup. Look at verse 8. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? If you were to read the Gospel of John, compare this with the Gospel of John, John gives you the rest of the story. It really was spearheaded by a certain disciple. Now, I'm sure that his animosity spilled out with some of the others, but who was the one disciple with the beef? Judas Iscariot. And John tells us why Judas was the one that was so angry. Why this waste? Now, when you hear that, and I'll tell you why he would say that, because the kind of oil that she was pouring was very, very expensive. It was called oil of spikenard, and spikenard was something that grew in northern India. It had to be imported. It had a fibrous root anywhere between 3 and 12 inches long, and it would shoot out between 30 and 40 spikes per plant. And at the tip of those spikes were little oil pods of, of an earthy, uh, fragrant oil used for ritual baths as well as burial. Very expensive. Probably she had about $10,000 worth, scholars agree on. So when you hear the disciples going, why this waste? It sounds so noble. It sounds like, yeah, we want this guy on our board. Because he's going to say, if you make an expenditure, hey, you shouldn't be wasting God's money. It sounds really noble. But again, John tells you the rest of the story. It says that was because Judas was a kleptes, a thief. Kleptes, we get the idea of kleptomaniac from that. 
And the word kleptase means somebody who steals by a carefully prescribed program. In other words, somebody who had plotted out the income that comes in and over a period of time was extracting money. John chapter 13 tells us Judas was the treasurer. So he didn't want to lose control of any money going toward or around Jesus. He wanted it for himself so that he would have more money to steal. But some of the other disciples must have got caught up with it as well. For this fragrant oil, say these disciples, whoever they are, spearheaded by Judas, might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring out this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial for her. Judas was critical of Mary. And Judas was hypocritical before God. Judas is what we would call a sin sniffer, a fault finder. You know the type? If you're around him or her, they're always, their little legalistic sensors are always out. They're sniffing for sin. They're finding fault with anything and everyone. Critical of Mary, hypocritical before God. You remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, first remove the speck from your own eye before you, you, or excuse me, before you, when you see a speck in your brother's eye, first remove the telephone pole from your eye, basically. The moat, the beam, the speck, the log. Remove that so that you're able to see. I have a brother who uh, has been a golf pro for a number of years. And um, I was with him, and I was asking him about different drivers to use because my balls don't always go straight when I hit them. They, they go off to the right a lot, or if I try to correct, they'll go off to the left when I try to make a drive. So he said, well, here's a good club for you, Skip. It's, you know, it's about that big around, the driver head. It's huge. So I said, so why is bigger better? He says, because the way it's constructed, it's a more forgiving club. I said, explain forgiving. He said, it's got a bigger sweet spot. You have more surface between the toe and the heel of that club so that if you hit the ball like you hit the ball, (laughs) erratically, sometimes in the middle, but not usually, sometimes on the heel and the toe, it's going to be more forgiving and give you a straighter shot overall. It's more forgiving. It has a bigger sweet spot. And I heard that and I thought, wouldn't it be great if more of us Christians had a bigger sweet spot? Not like Judas, not critical and hypocritical, but a sweet spot of being forgiving. And not assuming that this woman has bad motives in pouring this out, but good motives. So Jesus rebukes the disciples, Judas included. And notice he says in verse 10, in verse 11, For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, don't misunderstand that passage. He's not endorsing poverty or saying that we should be apathetic in the face of human suffering. He is simply giving us 
a better prescription for divine stewardship. That in all of life, there ought to be a priority. Now, first of all, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15, where God brings him into the land, speaks through Moses in that chapter, Deuteronomy 15, and says, For you will always have poor in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Therefore, says the Lord, open your hand to the poor. And so Jesus quotes that to simply say, there's always going to be opportunities for you to show a good deed to those who are poor. However, now is the opportunity for this woman to do something for her Lord that she won't ever be able to do again. To extravagantly pour out this gift. And she's doing it, Jesus said, for my burial. If you look at all of the Gospels together. She's doing it for my burial. In other words, she's giving Jesus roses before the funeral. You know, sometimes people never, you know, get around a person or give them a gift or show them love. But then at the funeral, here's a bouquet of flowers. She's giving the flowers before the funeral. She's showing his love before he dies. There are certain things in this life that you only have the opportunity to do right now. You will never have the opportunity to do once life is over. Once you die, once you're off this earth, you will never again be able to write a check that you can give for the Lord's work and furthering His work upon this earth. You can't do that when it's all over. Another thing you can't do is you can't witness once you're in heaven. You're not going to witness to... Who are you going to witness to? Peter? (laughs) The apostles? Other believers who are in heaven? Now's that time. Now's the time for certain opportunities that we can use our resources for. And once that opportunity is passed, it's over with. So Jesus says, in that vein, in that spirit, The poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring out this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Francis Bacon once said, A bad man is worse when he pretends to be a saint. Have you heard the term, or excuse me, have you heard the name Jesse James? When you think of Jesse James, do you think of a church-going Christian, or do you think of a murdering thief? Think of a murdering thief. It's because he was. He held up banks. He held up trains. But get this. On one occasion, Jesse James held up a train, shot somebody, and then afterwards went to church to worship. He got baptized in the Kearney County Baptist Church and joined the choir. He said he loved Sundays. He loved Sundays. But he couldn't always make Sundays because he was out robbing trains and killing people. Back to Francis Bacon's words, a bad man is worse when he pretends to be a saint. Here is Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, going to betray Jesus Christ. 
What will you give me? They counted out 30 pieces of silver. Now, I want to inform you about a theory, and then I want to quickly correct it. There is a theory that says that Judas was really just trying to force Jesus' hand to prove that he was the Messiah. That Judas Iscariot believed Jesus to be a political Messiah. Because all the Jews, even the disciples at that time, thought the Messiah is coming immediately now, going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to politically be in charge of all of the world. So Judas was anticipating a political Messiah, trying to force his hand to get him arrested in the garden so that when the Roman soldiers come, that would be his show of glory to overturn the Roman government and set up his messianic kingdom. That he was just trying to push Jesus into a quick act. He was forcing his hand that he really believed he was the Messiah. In part, that is true. He did expect Jesus to be a political Messiah. However, according to Scripture, he's called the son of perdition. The Scripture paints a picture that there is no hope for Judas, that he is lost eternally. So it seems more plausible that he thought he was going to be the political Messiah, and he wanted a cabinet position in the kingdom. But the night that that woman poured that expensive oil on Jesus' feet, and here in Matthew, on his head, and Jesus commended her for doing that and rebuked Judas and the other disciples, at that point Judas knew he's not going to set up a political kingdom immediately, but a spiritual kingdom. And then he turned on Jesus, and that's when he went out to betray him. That seems to make more sense. Verse 17 Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to Him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And He said, Go into a city, the city, that is Jerusalem, to a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. According to the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, the disciples that were sent, were none other than Peter and John. Remember, there was an inner circle. There were the twelve, but there was the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. Peter and John were sent into the city. It was Peter and John who, on Resurrection Day, ran to the tomb together after the reports of the women that there was an empty tomb. So Peter and John went into the city... And according to Luke, Jesus said, when you go into the city and you find a man carrying a pitcher of water, you go to that man and you say, show us the room where my master is going to celebrate the Passover. The reason the man carrying a pitcher of water would be a tip-off is that in that culture in those days, typically women did the heavy lifting. They carried the pitchers of water. So to have a servant, a male servant, carrying the water would be able to be spotted in the crowd. You'll find that man. Go talk to him. And so it was a large upper room where they gathered together. It says, And they prepared the Passover. Verse 19, So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now stop for a moment. 
As much as I appreciate Leonardo da Vinci and all that he has contributed to art and invention, Leonardo has done you and I a disservice in painting The Last Supper. It's the most famous painting of The Last Supper. You know the painting I'm talking about. It shows them all on one side of a long table, all leaning inward for the picture. It's sort of like, okay, smile. Right? They're all leaning in. That's not what happened. That's why I say Leonardo has done us a disservice. The meals that were celebrated in those days were on the ground. And the table was a U-shaped table. A U-shaped table called a triclinium because it had three sides. Like a U. Three sides. They didn't sit down. The word in Greek literally is they reclined. And the idea is that you would lay on one side resting your elbow on a pillow, you would be flanked on your side with your feet away and back from the table. And they all were in that semicircle in that U-shaped table, not behind the camera or facing the camera like Leonardo pictured it. So they sat down or they reclined. And then Jesus announced, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And the way the question is asked, it is a rhetorical no. That's the answer they would have expected. But of course, at this point, Jesus telling this information would fill them with all sorts of anxiety and self-doubt. Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? was the repeated question. He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better or good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You said it. In other words, yes. It's in the affirmative. I have a question. Why did Jesus pick Judas Iscariot? If you think back to when it happened, Luke chapter 6 is one of those chapters of the Bible that explain Jesus picking the twelve to be around him. They're all named. And it says in that chapter that Jesus first, before choosing them, spent all night in prayer to his Father. Jesus certainly knew what was going to happen. It says, then after he prayed, Jesus chose and the twelve are listed. And it says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus, we know, was omniscient. He knew what people were thinking. He could read their thoughts. He knew in advance that the man that I am choosing is going to betray me. So why did he pick him? Well, two reasons that I can think of. Number one, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture predicted it. Jesus always lived in the knowledge of all things. He knew all the information. Like I said, he could read thoughts. He was omniscient. He could read minds. He could make predictions of the future, things that hadn't happened yet. He was 
fully aware of what Judas was capable of doing and what he would do. But he picked him, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It often says that in regards to Judas. Here's the second reason. And it speaks to us. Love, to be love, must be vulnerable. And whenever you are vulnerable, there's a chance... In fact, can I say there's a guarantee that you're going to be hurt. He knew that there would come the day where that sword of despair would go through his own heart because that man whom he loved and tried to reach out to repeatedly would betray him. He knew it. But love is vulnerable. And vulnerability hurts. I've had people who have come to me after being hurt by past relationships. And the question is, Skip, how can I guarantee that I won't get hurt again? Well, how do you answer that? There is no guarantee. If you're going to love someone, you're going to put your heart on the line, and you will get hurt at some point in that process. If you think you can live with the shelter so that you never get hurt, not going to happen, not going to work. When two people get married, they say vows to each other. For better or for worse. Not for better or for best. Not for richer or for richest. Not in good times and better. Sickness and in health till death do us part. To love is to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable is to be hurt. So Jesus picked Judas knowing what was coming. Reaching out to him through the entire process of three and a half years. And that's the big difference between Donald Trump and Jesus Christ. If this were Donald Trump, he would look at Judas and say, you're fired. But in that upper room, at that triclinium, John was to the right of Jesus, Judas was to the left of Jesus, and both those places were considered the place of honor at the table. Only do you get that spot at the table by the invitation of the host. Jesus had to have said, Judas, I want you here next to me. Reaching out to the very end, knowing that he would be hurt and betrayed. And Judas, verse 25, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you said it. John chapter 13 says, when he had eaten the morsel that Jesus dipped and gave it to Judas. As soon as he had eaten the morsel, that Satan entered into him. And Jesus turned to him and said, What thou doest, do quickly. Judas got up and walked out into the night. We're going to go down to verse 30 and we're going to close tonight and we're going to take the Lord's Supper because this gets us to the very supper itself, the very Passover meal itself. Verse 26. And as they were eating, that is eating the Paschal meal, the Passover supper, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks. He gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you 
in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Paschal meal, the Passover supper, was already by this time in Judaism a formalized meal. It was called the Seder feast. The Seder means the the ordered or the organized feast. There was an order to the service of the meal. And in modern times, it's printed out in a booklet called the Haggadah, which you can kind of go blow by blow. But basically, the Passover meal in ancient times and modern times revolves around four glasses of wine that are raised for commemoration purposes, all speaking of their history. The first cup was the cup of blessing, the Hallel. The cup was raised. The host welcomes his guests, the family. And he offers the blessing in Hebrew, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, Lord God, King of the universe, who gives us the fruit of the vine. That's, that's the Kiddush. And the blessing was then, the cup was then taken afterwards among all of them. Second was the cup of judgment. A judgment, part of the wine that was in the glass was sprinkled, like the blood was sprinkled on the doorposts in Egypt. And the host would tell the history of the Exodus, coming out of Egypt, coming out of the bondage, the judgment of God upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Then the host would take some bread and break the bread and dip the bread into bitter herbs, speaking of the bitter bondage of the past, and dip it into a little paste called haroset, which was honey and nuts and apples that spoke of the mortar that was used in ancient times made by the slaves for Pharaoh. Then that cup was taken. That's the second cup. It was the third cup in the meal called the cup of redemption. And at the third cup, the cup of redemption, Jesus raised it and said, this is the cup of my blood, a new covenant that I'm making. And that cup was taken. After the second cup, between the second and the third, the meal was eaten. So you had the first cup, the second cup, giving the history, dipping of the bitter herbs. The Passover lamb was eaten, the long, leisurely meal. And once that was done, the third cup, redemption, was raised. And at the very end of the meal was the fourth cup. That was the, the cup of praise, a Hallel psalm, a hymn, was read and sung. And that's why in verse 30 it says, When they sung a hymn... It's part of that Seder feast. They went out to the Mount of Olives. All throughout their history, at every Passover meal in Jerusalem, in Galilee, around the world, these components were being done in the Passover Seder that night. They had done it throughout their history. They had done it for thousands of years. But now Jesus Christ is transforming an ancient meal into a different meaning. No longer does this speak of the temporary physical bondage out of Egypt, but the permanent spiritual deliverance from sin. It's my blood. It's my body that is broken. And Jesus said, you will do this often and you will do it in remembrance of me. Now get this. Jesus told them to do it. That's the Lord's Supper. That's what we're celebrating tonight. Do it often. Do it in remembrance of me. And I thought of something when I was going through my studies this week. In fact, I saw it as a case 
for taking the Bible literally. Have you ever talked to people and say, well, you know, you take the Bible literally. and you, The Bible was never meant to be taken literally. So listen to this. Jesus gave his disciples a command and told them to do something. Did they see that as a figurative command or a literal command? As a literal command. They actually did get together and break bread throughout church history, beginning with the early church. Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, breaking bread. That's the second on the list, fellowship and prayer. In Acts chapter 20, they were breaking bread every single week. It says when the church got together, the first day of the week, to break bread. That was the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So they took it and applied it literally. Okay, now, when it comes to today, we're never told when Jesus said, do it often, how often? He didn't say, do it often, every week, every day, once a month, once a year. He didn't say. He just said, do it often. Some churches, some people do it every single day. Some people do it every single week. We do it once a month, but we encourage people on your own, in your homes, in your home fellowships, with your other small groups, Take the Lord's Supper. I take it every single week with a group of my staff members up in my office in between services. They took the Lord's Supper and it spoke to them of God's great forgiveness through the Passover lamb. Not the Passover lamb in Egypt, but what that lamb spoke of in the future and that is our Messiah. I'll close with this story. King Louis XII the king of France, wasn't always the king. He had enemies. Oh, yes, he ascended to the throne, and yes, he ruled over France, but before he ascended to the throne, he was a prisoner, kept in prison by his enemies. Once he was released, then he was coronated. His enemies were in morbid fear that the king would destroy all of them. In fact, King Louis XII's advisor said, kill all of them, exact revenge on your enemies, They've sinned against you. They've tried to hurt you. They put you in prison. King Louis decided he wouldn't do that. But rather, he ordered a document to be written with all of the names of all of the people who had committed crimes against him. Then he took, and at the end, at the end of their name, he wrote a cross in red ink after each name. When his enemies heard about that, they thought, that's our death warrant. He's marking it with red ink. That signifies our blood. He's going to kill us. He took the document with a messenger to his enemies before he released them and said, the cross that I place after your name is not punishment, but a remembrance That just as Jesus forgave his enemies while he was hanging on the cross, so I am pardoning all of you as your king. And that cross was to remind not them, but him, the king, that he was forgiven by the blood of the Savior. And that he would extend forgiveness to those who had sinned against him. You and I were marked men and women. Marked for death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's a cross in the blood of Christ attached to your name where God, like in the ancient times, has passed over your life, passing over 
the execution of judgment. Because all of the judgment has already been taken by Jesus himself. Would you bow your head and pray with me? And then I'm going to ask two of our pastors to take us through the steps of the Lord's Supper. And then we'll break up and baptize. Father, we stand here tonight after looking at a text of Scripture that just happens to interface perfectly with what we're doing tonight and being obedient to you and taking these elements. We thank you, Lord, that not only are we gathered here, but our family of believers is gathered in Santa Fe as well. That there's just a few miles that separates us and them, but the Spirit is the same, the Savior is the same, the work of God is the same. There are also people that are watching by internet and perhaps gathered with friends or family members or Bible studies also taking these elements. Thank you. Thank you that Jesus knew all about what was going to happen, announced it, walked into it with the full confidence that his act would be enough to take away our sin. And thank you, Lord, as we see how Jesus treated Judas all the way up to the very end when Judas's heart was just so hardened that we have in Jesus the beautiful example of the extension of love, acceptance, the willingness to forgive, and a heart that was made vulnerable, although he knew from the beginning who would betray him and how. We marvel at that. And if we think that Jesus could forgive us from the cross, that we certainly could forgive one another. These elements speak of that. In Jesus' name, amen. On your chair, there should have been a a little cup of grape juice as well as a cracker on top. Let's begin by peeling off the top and taking out that little cracker. As Pastor Skip just read, Jesus gave us the example. He gave us the model. And He began with the breaking of the bread. And he said that it represented his body, broken. And and we read that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul pointing back to this Passover supper, this first model that Jesus gave. and And he said that it represented his broken body. And we recognize that, as Pastor Skip has said many times, this great exchange occurred. His brokenness for ours the world is a broken place isn't it and as we take this we recognize that we can be healed and we can be made complete because he was broken let's pray father we do remember your broken body broken for us and as i hold this cracker in my hand it just happens to be broken and and we we can break this and as we chew it in our mouths it's broken and we're reminded of your body that you gave freely and you were allowed it to be broken so that we could be made whole and so we take this now and we celebrate and we say thank you Jesus for taking our brokenness and making us whole Mm -hmm. amen let's take the cracker together
As Pastor Skip read this evening here in Matthew, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Are we not a blessed people because He has made us new? Are we not blessed that we can sit here in front of a Savior who has shed His blood on your behalf and my behalf? Are we not blessed people because He has forgiven us of our sins? And are we not blessed because He's given us the opportunity to honor, to worship Him, and adore Him in this memorial? So as we pray, thank Him, bless Him, honor Him. You will not be disappointed and how He will continue to work in your life as you do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son broken on our behalf, bleeding, Lord, for the sins of this world. And we thank You, Lord, that that sin has been wiped away from our lives because of His bruises because of His iniquities. So we give You all honor, all glory, all power, Lord, this evening, thanking You for what You are doing in our life individually and collectively. But we humbly submit ourselves fresh and anew, remembering, Lord, what You have accomplished on our behalf. And Lord, let this be a reminder, not only of what You have done 2,000 years ago, but what You're doing now in our lives presently, and what you will do in the future when you come for us again. So, Father, we take this in celebration of what you have done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's partake together. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.